You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today. I'm very excited to have Greg Thomas. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, no, thanks very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. No, I, I was glad that you were willing to come on to my show because I um, I first came across your your website, theartteacher.net, a little while ago. It was recommended to me to check out. I saw it on social media and it just, you have developed such a wonderful wealth of resources of all different types of artists, the kind of thing that I try to do with my show. And I think you're doing it in a beautiful form. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. That's a really nice compliment. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of work and it it didn't used to be, it's more work than it used to be now. Um, But my students find it, uh, really useful, particularly the the pages about um, specific artists, or you know, if they're looking for artists inspired by food, for example, they can have a, a, a flick through. And I've, I've tried to make it, you know, as student friendly as possible, so not as not really as intimidating as finding facts about the art or um, listing off, you know, the same generic responses like this is unique or this is different so I've tried to use questions in there that I think my students respond to quite well and they did seem to which is why I carried on yeah and I like I say I think it's a really nice valuable resource and I think I think part of the reason I find it really helpful is because you've developed it in a way that is student friendly so it's like something I can put out in my classroom but also just as an art teacher, sort of an authority figure with the mind of a child, I appreciate that you've broken it down to a level that even I can understand. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Thanks for the the compliment. And so today we're going to be talking about an artist that I'm going to be honest, was kind of new to me. When you suggested her, I had to kind of look her up. I was not familiar with Mm -hmm. Felita Barlow. Did I pronounce that right? Um, I think it's pronounced Philida. 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 Thank you very much. One day I will pronounce a name correctly, but that day is not today. It's not, it's not a typical uh, or common name over here either. So, you know, (laughs) okay. Um, But I, I appreciate your being so, 
so kind about the corrections as anytime I'm talking to somebody with a British accent, I just have this inferiority complex because I, I hear your accent and think you must know more than I do. Um, do you have that on, on your end too? Do you hear my American accent and think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about? No, and I think <laughs> it's all a ruse that we do know what we're talking about. <laughs> Just so, because it means English doesn't mean that we know what we're on about. It's fine. <laughs> well, um, talking about Philida Barlow, Philida, right? Philida. Philida <laughs> Barlow. I say it with a lid. Okay. Now talking about Phyllida Barlow, um, she was born April 4th, 1944, Newcastle, England. So kind of a rough time when you think about everything that was going on 1944, um, yeah. just historically, that's, that's a rough time to be growing up. Um, her father was a psychiatrist, Erasmus Darwin Barlow, which interesting connection, speaking of history, great, uh, great grandson of Charles Darwin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she grew up in London, like I said, recovering from World War II. Um, and in 1960, she goes to the Chelsea College of Art, where she studied under George Fullard. Are you familiar with Fullard? No. Um, not until I did a little bit of research about uh, Fullard either. Yeah. Um, I, and to be honest, apart from when I was at university, I tend not to look into artists history that much really because I've no need to at the minute I'm I will with the students a little bit but yeah it's more at the minute what I've got time for and what I'm interested in is work and artwork and then I'll you know if I've got a little bit of time look back on what the artist history was what they've done the past exhibitions you know where they grew up all that sort of thing um but no primarily I think I'm just interested in their artwork See, and that's funny because I I am in some ways almost the opposite because I find their their background informs so much of their art, or at least yeah. it helps me to understand their art. Because when I think of like when I look at Barlow's work, understanding that she was growing up in a time of like you know London recovering from from World War II, a lot of reconstruction. I'm I'm imagining happening after you know the war was so devastating to everything in in that environment mm -hmm. and then i also think about like she's studying under a sculptor who she said was a big influence on her work with that idea of like art as the experience and things can sort of fall apart and decay and be built up and like her sculptures are monumental, but they don't feel monumental in the sense of like, it is going to necessarily stand the test of time. Yeah. They're not on a pedestal. You know what I mean? And yeah, and, yeah absolutely. And, and, and in that sense, like, I feel like looking at her background really helps me to understand this work. Cause when I first looked at her work, just on the surface level, I was a lot less interested in it than I was mm -hmm. when I came to understand that background. Mm -hmm. It definitely, yeah. it definitely informs um, a reading of her work, doesn't it? Her, yeah. You know, saying completely valid as well. So. Yeah. And so after that, you know, she's, she's going to art school. She went to the Slade school of art, 1966 mm -hmm. 
And she had a quite full career teaching. She spent like 40 years teaching. Um, And one of the things I find just because I always like to think of like the historical context, like 1960s, it sounds like she was studying under some people who were less than stellar in terms of treating women as equals. I think I, I read a quote somewhere where she was told like by her, her te- one of her teachers, like, we're not going to spend much time talking about your work because by the time you're 30, you're going to be out of the arts. You're going to be, you know, a mom or making jam or something just disgustingly dismissive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think one of the things I always find inspiring about these artists' narratives is she overcomes that that stigma or, you know, the dismissive attitudes of people in her time. She mm-hmm. carved out a career for herself. She, she rose up, like she gra- graduated from Slade and by the end of her career, she's teaching there. She's a professor. And I think she was like in charge of like a department head there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, you know, after after a full career, like, like I said, 40 years teaching art in these various school contexts, then she comes back to make, becoming a full-time artist, which again, I just, I just have to think like to start an art career, which is very difficult to do mm-hmm. for anybody to be doing that. Basically when most people are retiring, she dedicates herself full-time to art around the age of like, was it 65 maybe? Just looking, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Is, oh, very, in, very late. Yeah, 2010, I believe, mm-hmm. is when she or 2009 is when she she like she retires. And by 2010, you know, she's getting representation from big art dealers. She had mm-hmm. that breakthrough, um, a breakthrough show within like a year of yeah. starting yeah. to dedicate herself full time. So in the last decade or so, she's had exhibitions around the world, all major institutions, the Tate, the, the new museum in New York, the Venice Biennial, you know, she's part of the Royal Academy in London, yeah. you know, she, like she's just, it, it's funny. She's spent 40 years to become like an overnight sensation. in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? um, I think having obviously a, a personal belief and then the drive behind that belief as well just to go for it and have such a huge change of direction yourself must be one daunting but two well most people would just find it impossible so she she's I think you know personally inspirational in that sense in that she's just absolutely gone hell for leather and done what she what she wanted to do um and did it really successfully as well yeah and as as an art teacher i find some inspiration in this because one i always love the the narrative of a person who persists and pursues their dream but Mm -hmm. also just like i look at it and some of her sculptures look like they were made by an art teacher just pieced together with what was lying around scraps of cardboard and fabric and paint and it 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 feels like it shouldn't work but it does you know it's like it it feels in some ways like uh, you know 
you raided the art closet and came up with something absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And I think if you, if you're not, you know, if you're not really a maker of art or if you're even a young person getting to grips with making art, you know, in school you do projects based on recycling and reusing materials. And it's so difficult to get something that's cohesive and make sense as a piece of artwork, even though you know what you want. And we, I as the teacher, can visualize what I want. I've got the materials to do it. It's so, so difficult to, to do something that even looks good sometimes. Um, and the idea of some of the, you know, some of the things that come into work, like using the same technique over and over again, you can do it and you can show the students and you can hope to build a project around it maybe as a teacher, but it's very hard to get something that's really successful out of those sorts of projects without lots and lots of guidance for the students as well. Yeah. I mean that getting that, that unity and getting something that's aesthetically pleasing with that variety of materials becomes a lot more challenging than I think a lot of people realize. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And so now getting into her work and the aesthetics and stuff like that, um, I... I I wanted to turn our attention to talk about like one specific piece. So I pulled here uh, two photographs of Untitled, the Upturned House 2 from 2012. Um, This was a piece that was at the Tate. And I know when you mentioned her, you had talked about having recently seen her work in person. I don't know if this is one you've actually seen up close and in person. But this is one that just caught my eye because... Well, there's a lot going on there, but I would love to get your read on this piece. What are you seeing here? What's jumping out to you? Um, I think it's so hard to to show on the on the picture, but it's so imposing when you see it. It's so huge. The, 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 the scale and the complexity of something like that... Um, which seems so simple, um, sticking all these materials together. But every, I think the more I think about it, the more of a contradiction it becomes. So all of the, the colours that she's chosen to use, all of the sort of sheets stuck together and plastered together and layered together, and then the angle that it's at, they almost look like they could be very light pieces of cardboard, very delicate. Um, but obviously they're not. So 
there's the whole idea of like scale and weight and mass made up of these very you know perhaps fragile pieces and the the impact of of that on well when I saw it definitely in the Tate it was just I wouldn't say overwhelming because I didn't find it overwhelming but it was uh, the impact of it and the scale was you know sort of incredible that's interesting that the you started to use words like delicate or or light to describe some of the panels put together because and and this is this is my read off of it just like it feels very imposing to me looking at it like the the sort of steps coming out of it towards the top that that looks to me like concrete like it looks heavy and it it it's at this angle that feels unstable. It feels like it could collapse on, on you at any point. Um, and it feels patched together in, in some ways, this to me feels like something that is the accidental result of like my handiwork around the house where it's like, okay, I tried this patch and then I tried this patch and then I tried this patch. And it's all these patches that come together in layers that maybe get the job done, but not in a beautiful or elegant or unified way. Yeah. You it, know? Seems, it seems so haphazard, but obviously the, and like you said, so precariously balanced that you didn't want to get too close to it. But then obviously there's the, the fact is that it is strong and steady and sturdy and grounded. Um, so all of these sort of opposites float around well, my thoughts. And when, you know, if you look underneath it, it seems to be balanced on little small blocks and pieces and chunks. And I think the, the jump between, right, it's finished, and the making, when do you finish, is, I don't know when that happens, but it does look finished enough to be, you know, visually, aesthetically pleasing. But at the same time, you could say it still doesn't look finished. So it's almost like it's juggling a line. It's between two two sort of separate ends of a seesaw it's it's yeah it's really unusual yeah you're right when you when it comes to like the craftsmanship of it it does it doesn't feel finished in the sense of being like really polished you know mm-hmm. you can see these rough edges on the painted panels and all of that and yet at the same time, I buy it as a completed work of art. I think yeah. because it is balanced and because it is stable, even if it is in a, even if it doesn't look stable, it mm-hmm. is actually balanced and stable. Yeah. Um, and those panels come together in an interesting way. To me, the, I don't know if it's the color scheme, but it, it just, it reads as very almost seventies to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at the inside of some, um, choices of color, maybe from the the seventies or the inside of houses. When you know when you see sometimes they've been knocked down partially, and you'll see some questionable choices that people <laughs> for the for the inside of their houses. No judgment, obviously, but yeah, definitely that 
that strange colour palette and then black and a really heavy red next to those pastel-y colours. Yeah, it it has this feel of almost, like you said, when you see a house that's being knocked down, it has this feel of like an excavation of a demolished site. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing the layers of changes and alterations and things patched together. They, that's my read on it, Yeah. Um, which I, I find kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, and there's almost like um, a repetition to it as if this isn't what maybe the artist completely had in mind. So maybe they knew part of it was going to look like this or they were going to use something here or something there. But it's almost like to me they were making decisions as they were going along and repeatedly adding these panels repeatedly layering them over each other repeatedly painting one in this color painting one in that color and then making decisions about the way it looks towards towards the end maybe i don't know yeah i think i think you make a really good point about the repetition and i think that's what gives it the unity to hold like to to make it work as a piece because we see as i'm looking at this i see those certain pastel colors you know that mint green is repeated sort of top middle bottom and it's repeated on different sides of the form i see the same pastel pink repeated in different areas throughout the composition she's sticking with a certain palette of colors that she's repeating around it just like those forms that are jutting out from the to me i read it as like you know wooden panels stuck together with like concrete forms jutting out from it yeah yeah. and those are distributed nicely around the composition like there's there's an interesting sort of balance and rhythm to the way those pieces break from that central column. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what holds it all together is because she is, as much as it feels kind of random, I think it is actually well planned out in terms of like the principles of design and stuff like that, just mm-hmm. not in a way that is entirely conventionally aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. There's, I mean, there is a balance and there's, uh, you know, an evenness to the use of shape and an evenness to the colours, the way they've been spread out. Even the sort of shape, the roundish shape, it's sort of swirls around and at the same time it's so harsh. And I'm just looking at it a little closer. Yeah, the, the composition of it is, yeah, like you said, very to me, very balanced. And obviously it's balancing on the bottom the way it's leaning over as well. So Yeah. So I guess it, it kind of works in a way that I never would have thought. So I guess to wrap it up, anything else you want to share about this piece, insights, thoughts you had on it or her more broadly? Um, maybe just about her work, you know, listening to interviews and seeing the work up close, there's definitely what seems like from her a thrill in the making and having one concept, whether that's twisting or screwing or scrunching or folding and using that 
over and over again and taking whatever material she's got and forcing them into something that, you know, becomes then a sculpture. And looking at the the exhibition in the Tate the other week, that was really clear. It's so hard to pick on, on photographs, but seeing it in real life and there was a huge, um, sorry, it was like really obvious that, oh, once I've heard this little bit of information about this process, this technique, I see that everywhere now. I can see that in this piece, I can see it here. So taking simple words and applying them really skillfully, I think, um, is, I think, is, is quite important. Yeah, and, and I think, like you, like you were saying, the, the enthusiasm with which she does that and just runs into, you know, and I, I think because she's, and I see evidence of that in the fact that she's doing this when most people, that's her retirement. Her, her leisure is, you know, pursuing this career in, in the arts and making stuff just for the, the sake of making it. I, I think I read somewhere that a lot of her early work no longer exists because she never conceived of the idea that there would be an audience to buy her work. So pieces have been reconstructed, taken apart, become other stuff, or just left there. She's just making stuff for the sake of making it. Um, and I, I think that's one of those those things that I, I find absolutely beautiful and inspiring. I love to see that in a work when the artist has that joy of creation. Yeah. You know. It was, you know like you said, a real joy to see the exhibition and a joy to see the work. It was almost gleeful. You could see the enthusiasm just through through the artworks. It was, I absolutely loved it. It was one of the, my favourite shows that I've seen. And yeah, like you said, she would often just leave her sculptures outside and have nowhere to put them. So she just put them in random places outside and they'd either be found and taken or someone did get left and left and left for years and change and move. So... Definitely that idea of making for the the joy of making. <laughs> yeah. And I, I if I if I recall my philosophy class from however many years ago, I think, you know, ancient philosophers always said that idea of eudaimonia and that, you know, finding that thing that you do for the joy of simply doing it. That is kind of the meaning of life, isn't it? To find <laughs> that thing that you are passionate about for its own sake. Um, so tip of the hat to Felita Barlow for finding and capturing that at whatever age. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a Louvre. joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. Um, I'm biased. I'm going to say it's one for the Louvre. Um, I think it says a lot about modern sculpture. I think it has nods to historic sculpture. Um, yeah, to me, it it belongs in the Louvre. Yeah, I I would agree. I think you know it it feels like a museum piece if if for no other reason because it in some ways upended my ideas of what sculpture could be you know 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I went to a conceptual school. I don't feel everything needs to be pretty, but at, at first glance, I looked at this and I was like, I don't understand how this works, why this works, but it does work. And so it took some thought and some analysis for me to find the rhythm of the pieces as they're assembled. And I, I always find that interesting. Um, for the sake of being contrarian and argumentative, though, I'm going to say I'm, I would throw this one in the loo just because it feels like in Barlow's style to leave something out to rot and yeah. allow it to be ephemeral and, <laughs> and everything like that. To put it in the loo. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe one thing that, you know, coming back to what you said at the start about her upbringing and when she was um, younger, uh, is the title Upturned House too? And whether that makes a little reference to um, her past, perhaps, or I know that is obviously what the, the piece is as well, but whether the idea is more rooted in her own past, or maybe that's a little bit more personal. Um, I just thought of that when we were having a little chat. And so. Yeah, it's always hard to, it's always hard to say, that, but I do feel like as you had mentioned before, it has this feel of like an excavation of a house and seeing those questionable color choices and stuff that we had, we had seen from previous generations and stuff like that. That was the, that was the connection I took to it, but I I think you're right. Maybe it is history and personal experiences and, and collective experiences from the, the culture and the time she grew up in. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate um, your taking the time. I'm glad we could figure out the time change and make it work. Um, Thank you very much. Greg Thomas, art teacher from Manchester. Manchester. Yeah. So so Greg Thomas, um, art teacher in Manchester, England. Uh, I really appreciate your taking time, sharing your expertise, and I would encourage my listeners to check out your site, theartteacher.net full of tons of valuable resources and interesting and fun ways of categorizing artists to help people find, you know, the artists who played with food and other <laughs> stuff like that. Thank you yeah, very much. Thanks for having me. It was lovely. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted. If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.